Welcome to the Teaching Journeys podcast with Dave Roberts. A unique skill all humans have is the ability to share information across generations. And the Teaching Journeys podcast does just that. It creates learning opportunities with each amazing guest with a goal that each episode makes a positive impact on people worldwide. Before we hear from today's guest, please share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both. To another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast, I'm your host, Dave Roberts, and today it is my pleasure to welcome back for an encore appearance, Michelle Ann Collins. As the founder of Inhabit Joy, Michelle Ann Collins partners with individuals who have suffered grief, injury, or other types of loss as they recover, reclaim their wholeness, and build resilience for life's inevitable challenges. After a series of losses, including the death of her mother, her husband's suicide, and estrangements from primary family members, Michelle combined the tools she has collected as a yoga therapist and wellness coach and studies in positive psychology, neuroscience, meditation and mindfulness, and spirituality to turn post-traumatic stress disorder into post-traumatic growth and resilience. With the addition of certifications in grief education, in grief yoga, and several best-selling books in which he shares her story, Michelle helps others transform from barely surviving to joyful thriving. Michelle teaches and coaches in private, corporate, and small group settings and enjoys sharing her skills and experience through speaking and facilitating workshops and retreats. Deeply connected with the healing powers of nature, Michelle spends her leisure time hiking among the trees or paddling on the rivers near her home in Portland, Oregon. And Michelle, welcome back for another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I have to shorten that bio. It's <laughs> hard to listen to that whole thing. Um, so I have to teach you something This, since this is the teaching podcast. Okay. We, we out here in Oregon pronounce it Oregon, not Oregon. Just oh. so you're in the know. So it's Oregon. Yes. Yes. Perfect. You're a quick learner. Yeah. We even have t-shirts that are spelled O-R-Y-G-U-N to get people to pronounce it correctly. I will have to remember that. Um, it's like when I visited my friend, I visited my friend Patty Farino out and her husband out in Lancaster, South Carolina, but I was told it's Lancaster. So mm-hmm. I have to apply that teaching and generalize that to Oregon. Yeah. Oregon. Very excellent. Perfect. My wife says I'm a quick learner too. That's why I stayed married for 41 years. Wow. That's congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. Um, it has been quite an adventure, but a great adventure, but quite an adventure. So anyway, tell our audience, what have you been up to since your last appearance on the Teaching Journeys podcast? What have I been up to? Um, so many things. Uh, doing some more corporate work, you know, helping design uh, grief, uh, bereavement leave, sort of reintegration, teaching employees how to bring someone who's been on bereavement bereavement leave back into the fold and expectations, that kind of thing. That's just really something I'm very passionate about is how uh, educating people how to treat grievers because it makes the grief journey so much easier when the people around you know what to say, what not to say. And so that that's a passion project of mine. Um, doing a lot of coaching, you know, of people who are in bereavement, which I love. Writing, working on my next book. And just keeping busy studying mindfulness. And med- I, I'm actually in a, in a training. Talk about mm-hmm. love of learning. A two-year mindfulness meditation teacher training through Sounds True, which I am just nourished by. I love learning, love learning about these teachings. Yeah, I think the day we stop being inquisitive learners or we lose our desire to learn is the day we probably got to check and see if we still got a pulse. 
Yeah. I think curiosity is one of the best ways to stay young and vibrant and clear-minded. Well, the best teachers I know, Michelle, are, are the best students I know. Mm. Right. And we all learn as teachers mm. from our students. That's yeah. one of my favorite things about coaching the one-to-one process because every session that I have, when when I'm able to you know take a moment to process and witness my client's pro- uh, process, I'm learning a new way. You know, it's not all about what I've been through and what I know. Every single person teaches me a new way to get through challenges, and it's so beautiful. Our clients are the best source of information and inspiration. And our children. Don't forget them. That's right. Our children, our pets, they all have something to teach us. So when we we left off with the last podcast we talked, we talked more about I think your personal journey and how that that trend that translated into you getting involved in holistic therapies and mindfulness meditation and yoga. And one of the things that we had talked about was somatic therapy. So what is somatic therapy? What are the specific interventions involved? Well, I appreciate the topic uh because I, I hope you're right and that most people don't know very much about it because if you haven't been through trauma therapy, if you haven't hopefully been through a trauma, then yeah, why would you have heard of it unless you're a practitioner? And I just want to clarify, you know, I'm not a licensed therapist. Uh, my somatic therapy training comes from my mindfulness practices, mindfulness uh, learning, and also my own experience being in trauma and having had somatic therapy. So I just want to make sure that the audience is clear that there are people out there who know a lot more about it than I do, but I do have enough experience to speak from, you know, from the heart about it. When I first developed PTSD after my husband died by suicide, my regular therapist who had been more of a relationship therapist throughout our our time together my time with my husband. Um, she she's the one who rec- recognized the symptoms that I was describing to her as PTSD. I really didn't know what was happening with me. I just knew that I was having dissociative episodes, and what that means is I'm actually not where my body is. And I can describe that really quickly. I, I always find stories being much more illustrative. Because if you've never uh, had a dissociative episode, you can't understand what it means. I'm not where my body is. What, what does that even mean? Well, let me explain. So the first time it ever happened to me, I was just in a grocery store parking lot, you know, totally innocent on the way to my car with my little grocery cart. Now, my husband died in a car and I discovered his body in that car. and. The same make and model car had parked next to my car I was approaching with my grocery cart. When I saw that car, it triggered uh, an episode. And I, my mind my, was back at the scene of his death. My body was still in the grocery store parking lot. And several minutes actually went by where I, I have no memory of what was happening, where my body was during that time. I came back into association. I was sitting in the front of my car in, in my driver's seat sobbing. And my poor daughter, I, I feel so bad she had to witness this. She was with me and she just put her hand on my shoulder. Mommy, are you okay? And I realized we had put the groceries in the back of the car, op- you know, opened the car, put the groceries in, gotten in. And I, I was gone. I was not present for that moment. So. These episodes obviously can be incredibly disturbing to your life. Uh, I had another one happen while I was driving. Uh, And that is even scarier because you want to be where you are when you're driving. Mm -hmm. So when I described these episodes to my um, therapist, she said, this is PTSD. This is what one of the symptoms of PTSD looks like. And we need to find you a trauma therapist who is 
well-educated and experienced in her suggestion was EMDR. So getting more directly to the answer to your question, EMDR is one of the modalities that um, trauma therapists, skilled trauma therapists can use to help people work the trauma through their bodies. And a very important piece here that um, we can thank Bessel van der Kolk. And if you've never heard of him, your body keeps the score. Mm-hmm. There's another book, Your Body Keeps your body speaks your mind. Um, I always mix those two up, but I think his is the score. Uh, we have to remember that whatever happens to us, whatever we take in with our senses also has a mere effect on our physical body. So I don't believe there is such a thing as mental health separate from physical health. And most mind-body integrative practitioners will agree with me. So... Imagine how unwell you have to be to be so disintegrated that your mind and body aren't in the same place. Mm-hmm. That's, that's PTSD. That's, that's trauma. So, so EMDR is one type of somatic therapy, which I did not actually choose to engage in, but I want to make sure people know about it because it can be incredibly effective. Uh, I have not done it. So, but, but one thing too, and it has to do with moving your eyes in certain directions while replaying or revisiting your trauma. And most of the somatic therapy, probably all, involves that same thing. It's bringing your mind to the triggering event and then reestablishing safety in your body, staying in your body. So the ones that worked best, I'm sorry, I'm going to pause in case you have any questions so far. I'm good. Keep going. Okay. Just want to make sure. Um, so somatic refers to the body. That That's um, a it, probably Latin word. Um, medically, anything somatic refers to the body. Mm-hmm. And when you disconnect, like I was explaining, from the body, the, you're... You're very unwell. So in yoga, yoga is a mindful physical practice and obviously a spiritual path as well. Although Mm -hmm. in the West here, it's become more. I read the other day, there's a yoga competition, which is the biggest oxymoron. I mean, all the the ancient yogis in the East are just laughing at we Westerners. That's not yoga. Yoga is a path to spiritual enlightenment. Well, yeah, I think give... Given what the yogi masters had intended for yoga, I would see them laughing. It isn't about a competition. It's about creating total spiritual awareness and a way to obviously, uh, you know, coordinate movement with, 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 uh, with thought. Right. Yes. And yoga itself translates, you can read different translations, but it translates as oneness, wholeness, Hmm. or the yoking of the mind and the body together. So it really means the opposite of dissociation, which I never put that together until, I mean, I'd been a yogi for 15, 17 years, something like that. Before I went through my somatic therapy, I was already a yoga therapist at that Mm -hmm. point and still not able to use my tools. It's so important to go to a practitioner who is well-trained and has experience if you have trauma. It's so important because it's very, very delicate. So for me, uh, my particular experience on my trauma therapist's couch was life-changing, not just for me surviving trauma, PTSD, and learning how to maintain embodiment when faced with a challenge, uh, when faced with a, a trigger or an activation of trauma. I don't like to use the word trigger, and guess why? Because my husband used a gun mm-hmm. to end his life. And when people say trigger for many years, that was a trigger for me. I would mm-hmm. immediately picture a gun and what I had seen when I discovered his body and be activated. My trauma would be activated. So I wouldn't be able to be present for whatever the next words were. So even if I didn't have a full blown dissociation, I would have an activation of my trauma 
and not be able to be present for whatever came after that word. Now, with working with somatic therapy, I have been able to now hear that word and stay present. Another activator was people do this a lot. Mm -hmm. it, it, is, it is a gesture that until you are traumatized by gun violence, you would never think twice about doing that, right? No. If someone did that within the first couple of years after my husband died, I'd be gone. I would, I would sweat. I would shake. I would have to do what I'm going to get to in a minute about the, the somatic therapy training, basically, mm -hmm. that I had to stay embodied so that I wouldn't just have to cry or run or, you know, the first couple of years, it was a lot of turning to alcohol and drugs. Um, I, a little after, over two years after Glenn died, I stopped using um, alcohol and that has been a huge boost. Mm -hmm. uh, to my, my health and well-being, you, it's really hard to heal when you're numbing yourself. Well, it because is, again, that takes you out. Mm -hmm. It, any type of self-medication prevents you from feeling what you need to feel and, and actively cognitively processing the events so that you can reestablish identity in a changed world. And, and it's yeah. a temporary fix, but Trauma tends to do that. I mean, to, especially yeah. the, the trauma you experienced with Glenn and his suicide. Um, there's, a, there's a correlation between individuals who have PTSD and substance abuse. That's been a correlation that's been proven for, for a long time. And, and a very understandable because mm -hmm. it's really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. it's, it's horrible. And that's I what I came to my therapist with. Mm -hmm. I said, this can't happen. I can't live this way. No. This is horrible. I don't know what I'm doing when I'm away from my body. And it, it is. It's, it's awful. So right now, here's a great example. Talking about this just now has activated me. And with the therapy and the practice that I have, I can notice that I'm activated. My heart mm -hmm. rate's up. My body feels warm. I'm, I'm starting to have a little, little glow. Um, little flesh. Mm -hmm. All my muscles are tense. And so my somatic therapy practice is, and you know, it's nothing different than yoga and mindfulness. They're all the same thing. So I take a deep breath. You can practice this with me in case this conversation has activated anyone else. Deep breath. And what I do for sort of the immediate moment because I'm here in a podcast and I can't go running outside or whatever. Um, I feel my hands on my knees. I feel my feet on the floor. I connect to nature. Even though I'm in my house, energetically, I can connect to the earth. And I breathe. I focus on my breath. Deep breathing. In and out through the nose is a little bit more calming than in and out through the mouth. But sometimes... When you're really activated, you can't do that. So, and I feel my heart rate slowing. I feel the flesh calming down. I feel the weight of my body instead of feeling like I'm about to leave my body. And again, that might be very confusing to people who aren't somatically aware, but it's something that just takes practice. And I'm back. And that's all it takes now. I can do it in a matter of a minute or so where before, you know, at the beginning, it would be how soon can I get to, you know, some, some drug or alcohol uh, to, and that wouldn't help me get embodied or process the trauma, but it would give me some relief as far as the suffering, mm -hmm. uh, the horror and, and the so uncomfortable, you know. So back to, uh, did you, I'm going to stop there if you have uh, anything, any response, and then I'll go on to talking about my therapy. I, I think just that technique in and of itself is a very simple way to get recentered, to get grounded, because when you're doing your breath work, you can inhale in positivity or calmness and exhale fear and, um, you know, disconnection. 
And mm-hmm. then you talked about with dissociation, and dissociation can be a life-saving defense in a lot of ways. But when we mm-hmm. do we do that, like you said, when it's consistent that we're doing that, we're dissociating from our own our own body, our own experience. That's when it gets to be problematic. And you mentioned triggers. It could be anything. It could be a noise. It could be if a person was abused and that was the the activating event for PTSD. They see somebody in the environment who looks like their abuser, who sounds like yeah. their abuser. All of this can or the can word act, trigger activate, or the word <laughs> trigger. Yeah, yep. And I think what's important, and I think your you know your discussion of how trigger is a trigger because of how how Glenn took his life. We have to. I've learned to be more mindful with the, the individuals that I do grief with in terms of what I say and how I say it. So if an individual died by suicide and it was through choking, I'm not going to, you know, use terms that have hanging in it. Or I, if it's a, if it's a gun, I'm not going to say, well, I'm going to shoot my mouth off. You know, I'm not going to say mm-hmm. things like that. And I'm, and if I do that, I'm going to walk it back real quickly or check with the individual, acknowledge that that was, was the wrong term to say and apologize for any um, unintentional concern that I may have caused them. And that's why I think it's important with the work that you're doing is to show individuals how to sit for individuals who are grieving, what to say, what not to say, what to do, um, how to be present for them. Because that's something that is, it's not an innate skill in the society. It's something that we need to learn more and more of. And particularly um, with the, particularly in this state of affairs now, we need to learn how to be present for individuals who have gone through trauma. Yeah. Yeah, and and I really appreciate everything you just said. Uh, the awareness of your speech is so important and a skill that it, it's a constant practice. You know, it's something that I work hard on every day, every conversation I have. And it, it's hard. It's hard work. But when you learn the value of it to yourself and the person that you're speaking with. So you, you are in the very low percentage of people that, that are thinking because I have heard everything. And what, what I learned after a couple, probably two or three years out, um, is that I can't control my environment. I can't never see a gun. I can't never have someone walk up and do this in front of me. I, you know what the only thing that we have control over is our reactions to these stimuli mm-hmm. my my favorite uh quote from Viktor Frankl who was a uh holocaust survivor and a psychotherapist and it, it's been you know paraphrased so many thousands of times but still one of my favorite explanations when you're talking about mindfulness in between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is your freedom to choose, to choose your reaction, your response, your, your life. Your whole life is based on stimulus and response, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you get to choose. And when you are mindful, when you, you can make that space long enough to be thoughtful what is the most healthy response? What is what is the most beneficial response to me and the person I'm interacting with or to my environment? You know, c- simple things like, can I choose a glass container over a plastic container? Mm-hmm. Can I, you know, choose a, an additional vegetable instead of additional carb in my lunch today? Little things. It doesn't have to be anything really big, but living a mindful life is a choice that you, with practice, with practice of mindfulness, you can improve any aspect of your life, including circling back around, uh, surviving trauma. Mm-hmm. And my life, yeah, I have this terrible experience, a number of terrible experiences, as you've, you know, read in my bio and more that aren't even in there. Um, but it's not what happens to you, Viktor Frankl. He's writing this when he's in a concentration camp mm-hmm. where every day he doesn't know if he's going to be killed or not. Mm-hmm. He's sick and not being fed proper nutrition and losing friends every day. 
And he comes up with this theory in that extreme circumstance. So we can do it when we're in the grocery store or post-traumatic. So my Mm -hmm. experience, are you ready for me to dive into the somatic therapy experience? I am, but I just want to say this before I forget it. Well, you're, you're referring to Viktor Frankl. It's the, I know it's the one of the best books of our generation. And you're right; he wrote that yeah. book when he was in a, he was in a, in a concentration camp. Man's search for meaning. It is translated. You know, he he didn't write it in English, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, man's search for meaning. So, so yeah, it's, so. It's really a foundational book, uh, you know, again, back to mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and people in, in the modern mindfulness movement, everyone refers to that book. And he isn't referred to as the father of modern mindfulness because he is so many other things, but he certainly could be. For sure. For sure. Um, yeah, to be able to be in your, in your creative helpful mind when you are under such extreme duress and fear for your life that is some mindfulness that is that is very deep control over Mm. yourself now somatic therapy i'm sure has a variety of different interventions that are attached to that how do you decide when a client comes in and says i'm i need somatic therapy or am i a candidate for somatic therapy how do you decide which specific interventions you use within that construct? That's a great question. And I think it is very individual. It depends on what the practitioner offers and what the client feels is going to, to help, hmm. is going to be the most beneficial. For me, in, in my experience, I went into this particular therapist because she offered EMDR and my therapist recommended it. Once I got in there and we started working together, I was, I developed a fear of EMDR, even though I had done some research, I knew it was incredibly effective. I was too, I was activated by the idea of EMDR and that was my own, you know, trauma brain. So I chose not to. And fortunately, because I was at such a good therapist, she had many, many other types of modalities that she could use. And the one that worked best for me was the embodied, just the embodiment, the breath, um, kind of like the grounding exercise I just walked us through. And uh, I'll describe my experience. So I'm sitting on her couch, very uh, trauma-friendly room, right? The lighting, the, the odor of, uh, you know, a, a scented candle or not scented. If, if you're scent sensitive, she would ask that. Um, Everything around was in it was very calming, right? Um, pictures of flowers, and I know that might even sound kind of hokey, but our our connection with nature is our disconnection from nature is one of the things that causes our mental disease in our society. Mm-hmm. Outside, she had a big window that looked out over some trees, and connecting to those trees. Again, it sounds so silly if you haven't experienced it, was one of the ways that I could stay embodied. And staying embodied is the goal. Not just staying embodied, but recognizing. So it starts out, I'm talking, right? It's therapy. And I start getting activated. But I don't notice because I'm not so Mm -hmm. somatic therapy oriented yet, right? I haven't learned about it. And my therapist, being the brilliant person that she is, recognizes this, interrupts my story, which really irritated me at first, because when you, the first thing you want when you're in grief is to be witnessed, but that wasn't the goal of our therapy. The goal of our therapy was to get me to quit dissociating and to be able to handle trauma triggers, trauma activation. So she would say, take, she put her hand up like this, take a breath. And I needed that. If she talked, I would just talk right over her. Because I was, ah, you know, trauma. Take a breath. And I would get irritated, but it would break the cycle of me being activated, 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 and possibly coming into a dissociative episode. Take a breath. Look out at the trees. That's a mindfulness practice. 
Mm-hmm. Right? You're becoming present where your body is. And then, and this is one of the most crucial steps that still helps me on a daily basis. What am I feeling? And earlier I mentioned how the mind and body are not separate, right? Unless you're uh-huh. in dis-ease. Um, and it took me some time to learn this because I was physically oriented through being, you know, a gymnast and a dancer and a yogi, but only towards pain, to be honest. You know, oh, that hurts. I better modify. But now it was emotions I was looking at, I was looking for in my body. And this mm-hmm. is just crucial, this part of it. To be able to name what you're feeling. And I demonstrated this a little bit with our practice earlier. Um, my chest is tight. You know, I, I mentioned earlier what the symptoms of activation that I was going through. My chest feels tight. My stomach feels nauseous. These are the answers I would give my therapist. Mm-hmm. And she'd say, okay, bring your full awareness to that tightness in your chest. And then, like you said before, you can breathe in ease, breathe out tension. And we would do a grounding exercise until that tightness in my chest eased. Now, you can imagine this took a lot of time, a lot of storytelling on my part, a lot of calming, bringing me back, bringing me back. But the benefit, as I demonstrated earlier, is when I start to become activated, because as far as I'm concerned, trauma never actually goes away. You just learn to make it through it, through your activations, and they get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller because you get more and more and more and more skilled. Mm-hmm. So just like I demonstrated, I did a quick grounding exercise and I'm fine. I'm all back. So uh, I would like to, I'm going to pause again for questions, but I would like to tell you a story about a time early on. It was maybe two years after Glenn died. So I'd been in trauma therapy a little over a year where I actually was able to I was very highly triggered and I was able to use these practices to stay embodied. But I'll pause first. Trauma doesn't go away. We just learn how to manage it. We learn how to integrate it. It's a very similar process with grief. We will continue to grieve for as long as we live for as, because we will grieve the physical absence of the, the people in our lives, but it becomes more manageable. It becomes more integrated. We have developed over time more skills not only to deal with trauma, but to deal with our grief. So that's yeah. that's the, the, the one observation that I had is that there seems to be a parallel with that. Um, exactly. Yeah. It's they're both very disturbing situations to be in, um, grief and trauma. And and with a suicide loss, they're almost always connected. Well, you're talking about traumatic death, and you're also talking about stigmatized death. So not only is it the trauma of the loss, but you're also talking about a loss that's stigmatized and is subject to scrutiny by many individuals who don't understand the dynamics. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's so, why we're doing what we're doing today, right? That's right. So to create awareness and to um, hopefully educate some people who may need more knowledge on the subject. So. So you were going to get into how somatic therapy, how you apply that personally to a situation. Yes. So yeah. I would have turned it over to you and so you can share with our our audience uh, how you were able to, to accomplish that. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. So I was at home in the home that Glenn and I shared, and it was actually for sale. Uh, his estate had closed a, a few months earlier, and so I was able to finally put my house on the market. And obviously a very disturbing time, right? I'm, I'm kind of activated all the time and not, you know, still interfering with my healing by a very regular alcohol consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else was pretty good as far as like I was still, I was back to my yoga and meditation and all that. Um, so the, uh, someone was in the house doing measurement and they had a laser pointer and I didn't know that they were behind me measuring the kitchen. I had my back to her and she came up behind me and pointed the laser pointer over my shoulder. 
Now, why that triggered me, I don't know. I, I The thought that I've given in, in thinking about it, I'm thinking that I probably pulled the combination of gun violence trauma that I experienced to uh, seeing it on a movie that guns sometimes have laser sights. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessarily part of my the actual lived trauma, but it activated me, triggered me. And I didn't just immediately dissociate because at this point I had been practicing and practicing and practicing for this moment, even though it would be preferable to avoid all moments like that because having your trauma activated is incredibly uncomfortable. But this is what happened. I looked at the laser pointer against the wall. I, I jumped because it scared me, you know, kind of like a, the hot stove sort of immediate reaction. And that's where the pause came in. That's where I was able to feel my choice only because I had been practicing and in therapy all this time. I felt what felt like, I I imagine what the coaches feel like when they dump the Gatorade over their shoulders, this immediate, just cold, icy feeling on my back. My arms are numb. My chest is tight. Mm -hmm. And my face is flushed like I had uh, experienced earlier talking about Mm -hmm. my earlier trauma. I felt all of this happening, but I was able to notice it and not go into dissociation, not go into reactivity, but tell my, oh, okay, I'm, this is a, this is what brings on dissociative episodes. This is a very strong trigger that I have just experienced. So I immediately, instead of losing myself, okay, I looked down at my feet. I'm looking at my feet. My feet are in my shoes. And these are all practices, you know, somatic therapy practices. Connecting to your physical body. I can feel my breast. I can feel my hands on my thighs. It wasn't working. I was, I was still going up. Mm-hmm. So I took a breath. I zoomed outside. So this was a time when, you know, like on a podcast, if I was triggered, I wouldn't want to have to zoom outside, right? I don't want to stop the recording. This is why this control is such a gift to have. I can be here with you sharing my story in hopes that it will help someone else and not lose myself. This is what it's all about. So I zoomed outside kicked off my shoes because again, connecting with nature is a very uh, wonderful, effective way mm-hmm. to stay embodied. Kicked off my shoes, stood on, I had a big tree in my backyard, stood on where the um, trunk meets the ground. So it's kind of mushy and soft and cold. And I felt it. And I went to my senses. I can feel my feet in the squishy mud it still wasn't working. I, I put my hands on the tree. And yes, it sounds weird even talking about it, but I put my forehead on the tree. I felt the cold moss against my forehead. I felt the tree, the rough bark of the tree. I went back to my breathing. I started to crack. I looked down at my feet and I watched as my feet were dirty at this point. I watched each teardrop touch the top of my foot and make a little clean spot. And I stayed embodied. And I stood there for a little while longer, let myself cry. Crying is a beautiful way to let emotions go through, just like when I was talking about the tight, the tight chest and the breath. And these things pass. You're not going to cry forever. Your chest isn't going to be tight forever. You do these practices And I was able to stay embodied. And it took maybe, you know, several minutes that I needed to stay outside. I think my dog followed me out and I pet her for a little while. Touching a pet is, you know, also a wonderful somatic therapy. Mm -hmm. That's part of having a therapy bed. Um, My my pets aren't therapy pets, but if you have one, um, they're my own. They do help me, you know, if I am feeling uncomfortable and I can go pet one of my dogs or one of my cats. I actually have two of each. Um, That's another podcast. (laughs) But I was able to stay embodied. I wasn't able to stay in the room, but I wasn't picking on myself for that. 
I breathed through it. I did all of those practices that I, you know, there were several practices mm -hmm. that I, I touched on during that explanation of my experience. And then was able to go back inside and rejoin the, the meeting that, that I was having with my realtor instead of having to go get drunk or, or running around the block or wh whatever the next thing was to alleviate my pain. Mm -hmm. What you described is there's, there's a big elephant or elephant. There's a big element. Could be a big elephant too, but there's a big element of, of mindfulness when it comes to applying somatic therapy techniques. And one of the things you mentioned, and I want to say this, is that there, nature has its own spirit. Nature has its own, um, its com own calming effects. I think research has shown that even 20 or 30 minutes out in nature has a calming effect on anxiety, reduces blood pressure. And the Japanese have perfected forest bathing. So where you just simply, I think, just go out in the forest and allow just the forest and the surroundings to kind of envelop you. Um, and I know, I believe there's also some structured activities that you can do around forest bathing as well, too. But nature has a spirit all of its own. And if you look at the, the Native American philosophy, they, we, they believe everything has spirit. I mean, the stones, the trees, the water, everything speaks to us. And I mean, I've had times where I've been a bit anxious, times where I have been you know, just out of sorts. And I spent 20 or 30 minutes outside and it just got me regrounded again. So yeah. when in doubt, everybody, hug a tree. Hug it a works. tree, right. Or it works. Uh, my favorite thing to do is walk on the beach barefoot. Now, I live in Oregon. So this is, this is not a very common experience. But if I can get to Hawaii, that's mm -hmm. me. Um, that is one of the most, and, and they, there is research, scientific research behind like some sort of the, the ions in the, in the sea and the, and the sand, um, again, non-expert, just read, read a study on it that, that can really help you feel grounded. And I actually did a video on my Instagram, um, about that years ago, standing in, in the ocean or standing on the sand. Uh, and again, with my story, barefoot next to the tree, right? Mm -hmm. Connecting with nature. And it is exactly what you said. It is mindfulness. I don't know if you've ever run into this before, but I ran into a situation a long time ago where breathing, doing breath work as a form of meditation was a trigger, actually, for an individual who had lived um, with somebody where, where the, where the, the odors were just unbearable and he had to hold his breath just to get through that. And that was one of the things that I learned from my clients he goes, Dave, I can't do breath work because it's a trigger for me. Um, yeah. which is why I yeah. think the, the individualized approach and the, the number of, you've mentioned dance, you mentioned yoga, you mentioned meditation. I think somatic therapy has such a menu of options. We yeah. can, we can pick what is designed for that individual, but the other thing, yeah. and I know you, you are very aware of this. You're very aware of an individual's history and you are going to, with any client that comes in, design a program that's going to have techniques that are basically going to help them reground and not re-trigger them. Yeah. And I mean, a, a little bit of activation, a little bit at a time in a safe space is how awesome. my trauma therapy worked. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I would tell my story, I'd start to get activated. I'd learn the tools to stay embodied. And, and it was, it's like a training for a marathon. Mm -hmm. You know, you start one mile at a time and, and very, very slowly. And now I can sit here calmly talking to you about my experiences in, in hopes to help mm -hmm. others. And, that's pretty far. I mean, people don't need to get that far to live a comfortable life. No. You know, you don't have to share your story. But it is important. You bring up a really important point. Uh, some people can't meditate with their eyes closed. Mm -hmm. I always offer when I'm teaching meditation, close your eyes or look down, whatever you're comfortable with. Mm -hmm. uh, some people can't sit comfortably, mm -hmm. usually because of a physical situation, not because of a trauma. But you know what? It's okay to meditate standing up or mm -hmm. lying down. Mm 
mm-hmm. it's okay to meditate not still. Mm-hmm. You, you know, um, Thich Nhat Hanh's very famous for teaching uh, his walking meditations and it's mm-hmm. in the Buddha pra- Buddhist practices that I've been exposed to. It's sit, walk, sit. So you sit for 20 minutes, you walk for 20 minutes, you sit for 20 minutes, or you can even try it for one minute if, if mm-hmm. you know, 20, that's a whole hour. That sounds pretty intimidating, but. You know, it, the idea is just to be fully present in the moment, yeah. fully present. And if that takes movement, if that takes standing or, you know, um, some people meditate rocking side to side, mm-hmm. um, whatever it takes, you can do a meditation. I'll teach this one really quick. Uh, that is great for anxiety when you can't control your breath and you can't, um, necessarily control your environment it's just this touching the fingertips together oh yeah just that just being with touching the fingertips together and the movement helps to bring your attention to it but you can even instead of moving just focus on the connection fingertips and this position you know in yoga is a very balancing of mm-hmm. the right and left energies of the body. So that's that's kind of a bonus. But mm-hmm. this is one I teach and use very often. And you can do it if you're in a meeting, right? Or, you know, not driving, obviously. But see, you wouldn't even know I was doing it if I was that's in right. an online meeting. And say you were in an in-person meeting. Mm-hmm. So maybe your hands don't come together, but they're resting on your thigh. Mm-hmm. And you- Thumb. Press down, lift up middle finger, or first finger, middle finger. And you can do that in a meeting. You can do that anytime that you're feeling, you know, great one to use on the plane, for example, if, if you're an anxious flyer. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it doesn't take years of therapy or, uh, you know, hours and hours of practice to find these um, little helpful therapies that you can do in your everyday life to help you get into that pause that Viktor Frankl talked about so that your reaction, it becomes a thoughtful response instead of a triggered reaction. That's kind of our goal, right? I think it is. And I could see where what even what you just taught us now could apply to individuals who are grieving because particularly with grief, and as you know, it affects us physically, it affects us psychologically. And emotionally, um, and particularly cognitively, was when our our thoughts seemed to be just all out of, all over the place and all out of control and so overwhelming. Just doing things very simple, like touching your fingertips or exerting just moderate pressure on your thigh and just breathing mm-hmm. normally, that in and of itself can get us recentered. And you also mentioned the chest tightness in the chest. Chest contains our heart, right? It's the heart chakra, which is the you know the the home of, of joy and it's also the home of sadness and we carry our grief literally here we carry that mm-hmm. sadness here we carry that tightness here so anything That's we can perfect. do to alleviate that whether it's through mindfulness or through other somatic ter- therapy techniques is is crucial so wow yeah and uh, you know I'm gonna throw out another simple one I know we're we're running uh, close to time here but. This is another one that you can use so easily in any situation that you're in, even if you're driving. I've taught this one to clients uh, to use with who are very anxious drivers. Hands on the steering wheel. Just focus on that connection. You can still drive safely when you're doing that. But say you're not driving. It's anything that connects you with your senses. Mm-hmm. So I do this uh, five, four, three, two, one thing. And I'll, I'll say it quickly just so your uh, listeners can have one more tool. So you look around and you see five things in your environment, not judging. I mean, when I first started doing this practice, I was like, oh, I got to pick that up. Oh, there's a dust. There's a dust bunny under the couch. No, no, no. Don't interact with it. Just observe it. That's mindfulness. And then four things you can feel. So maybe it's the inside of your socks. Maybe it's, you know, hair. Well, maybe not for you, but hair on your neck. (laughs) Um, 
maybe the texture of your clothes, maybe your, your behind if you're sitting on a chair, what that weight feels like. So four, five things you can see, four things you can feel, three things you can hear. Sometimes you can hear three things. Um, if you really kind of picture your ears as a, a focus lens of a camera where you can go in and out. And then two things you can smell and one thing you can taste. And even if you haven't eaten or had anything to drink lately, oftentimes there's still sort of a taste in your mouth. Yeah. Might not be a particular food, but maybe a little salt, a little sweet, a little tart. And just any of those five things. But I like the five things because you count down, right? And then by the time you get to taste, you're embodied. You're there. You're present. Mm -hmm. and And you're not activated anymore. Yeah, very just, calming. And it's just very simple tools and techniques that any of us can use, which is really, really cool. So, so last question, I'm probably going to have to have you back for a third, third go around. Because <laughs> we have great conversation. We do. And there's just so much more I want to explore with this. We're going to have to do this again. Um, provide you're not, provide you're not sick of me yet, Michelle. I love, this is what I, I love to do this in hopes that someone out there is going to be helped by our conversation. So I'm happy to, I love it. Great. Me, me too. And that's, we have the same objective in mind that people are helped by the conversations that we have. Last question. If people want to get in touch with you, contract for your services, find out more about what you got going on. What's the best way for them to do that? Uh, to go to my website. And thank you. This is the easiest question you've asked me. <laughs> um, inhabitjoy.com. Most everything you need to know about me is on that website. I'm also on social media, um, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. Those are the main ones. Easy to yeah. find me, Michelle Ann Collins. You can even Google Michelle Ann Collins and stuff comes up. It's kind of creepy, but how you find me. Trust me, it does. I've Googled Michelle, and there's a lot of stuff that comes up with Michelle, which is a testament to the body of work that she's done over the years. So with that, Michelle, is always a pleasure. And until we do this again. Thank you. You too. I appreciate you and the work you're doing so much. Likewise. And with that, that's a wrap on another episode of the Teaching Journeys podcast. I'm your host, Dave Roberts, wishing you peace. Thank you for listening to this episode, and please remember to share this podcast with your family, friends, and colleagues, and don't forget to leave a rating, review, or both.